So our sermon text this morning will be Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 16. Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 16. Before we get uh, into reading that, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. And I pray, Father, that now as we seek to study that which you have to say to us, that you would give me wisdom, that I would speak according to the wisdom of God, not according to the foolishness of man. I pray, Father, that we would all be given hearts that are willing and ready to receive that which you have to say for us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 14, reading verses 1 to 16. Hear the word of God. In the days of Emraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made more war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaver Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Emraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Memre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anah. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Amen. May God bless his word to us. To talk to some people, you would think that the life of faith is a life of peace and open doors, and it's a life where you would have no enemies, and it's a life where people would leave you alone because you're just such a nice, peace-loving person. But there are two people in Scripture who are recorded as righteous in the sight of God here in our text this morning, 
And the scripture tells us that they did not get that peace-loving life where the world left them alone. One of those is Lot. And um, as I've said before, we have to just keep reminding ourselves that in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, he is described as righteous Lot. A righteous man greatly troubled by the sensual conduct of the wicked who was preaching righteousness to them. And, you, you know, we, we read... We read the life of Lot in the scripture and we wonder how could he possibly be called righteous? Well, he was called righteous because he had faith. He believed the promises of God that he had heard from Abram. And so he was counted among the righteous. Even so, he was not what you might call a strong believer and his sanctification was obviously in many ways very much lacking. Even so, righteous Lot features in this text and Abram features in this text. Abram, who believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And they have troubles. They have wars. They are, as it were, in the battles. The world does not leave them alone. God does not grant them some kind of miraculous um, protection through life whereby they never have any problems or troubles. God does protect us and I do not doubt us, but it's not as though that protection means it's protection which um, gives you the smooth ride. It's not as though that protection means that every step of your life you're sort of skipping through strewn rose petals whilst everything goes right. Quite often that protection actually means that you're protected from the very worst consequences of your own sinfulness. But even so, what you reap, you sow. That which you do has its consequences. And we're protected. We're held in the hands of the Lord Jesus. If we have eternal life, it's eternal life. Eternal means, by very nature, it does not end. Even so, we um, live with the consequences of our actions. In terms of a verse-by-verse progression through the text, I'm not going to do it. It's really very sort of self-explanatory. You have um, two alliances of kings. They're at war. It's the collateral damage of their war that affects the two people that we're most interested in, those two people here being Lot and Abram. They go to war. The first thing I want us to see is the progression of Lot. Looking at verse 12 of our text, Genesis chapter 14, verse 12, we read, They also took took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. If we look back at verse 12 of Genesis chapter 13, we see there, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. The um, King James will say something like he was hard up against Sodom. And that's a fairly good description. He basically moved right next door to the city of Sodom. He did not move into the city. But here we come by chapter 14 and we find that he's now dwelling in Sodom. We had been warned at verse 13 of chapter 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. Lot counted as righteous, was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, and yet, I would say foolishly, unwisely, 
he chose to move into the town. There would have been advantages to living in the town. You know, Lisa and I, just this last week, we've moved house. It's in some ways a far more convenient place that we have moved to. There are shops just down the street. We're we're seven, maybe eight minutes from the supermarket. I'm seven, maybe eight minutes from the place where I go to work. It's a very convenient place. There are reasons to want to be there. And I would suggest that Lot himself had reasons to want to be there. He wanted the convenience of living in the town, of being able to trade in the town square. He moved in, even though he was obviously aware that it was a wicked and evil town, given over to idolatry, given over to sexual uncleanness. He was living there. And uh, when the judgment of God fell upon the town in which he was living, the judgment of God also fell upon Lot himself. Can we be judged as believers? The answer is yes. God is always judging us, always. He is not judging his people to condemnation. We're not being sentenced to condemnation. The salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will never be taken away because it's the gift of God. But my friends, a father enacts discipline. We find that in the book of Hebrews. God disciplines us as a father. And so we're always open to the discipline of God. Lot moved in amongst the Sodomites. The scripture says to us in Ephesians 5.11 that we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, we read, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. In Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, we read, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. I'm sure most of you are fairly aware of what happens later on in the book of Genesis. We find that though Lot himself might still be counted as righteous, he's not a strong believer and that his family around about him is going to fall apart because of his foolishness. His family around about him, his wife is going to be struck into a pillar of salt for longing to go back into the town and his daughters are going to be, I will say, given over completely to their lust, to their sin. Consider very carefully where you want to make your residence. I'm not really talking about geography. I'm not saying it's better in one town or another. What I'm saying is um, where do you want to make your spiritual residence? Where do you want to get your spiritual food from? Lot moved into the town and exposed his family to the spiritual nature of that town. Now, where are people set apart? Where are people marked, as it were, and blessed with God's Holy Spirit? But we, each of us who is a man, we have a family. We have a responsibility. What are they being fed on? Where are you drawing their nourishment from? What kind of people are they mixing with? Now, you can't stop your kids from meeting sinners altogether, and that's a fact. We all know that it's true. But, my friends, what is their connection to the sinners, how much influence are they having on them? We need to think about these things. We need to be careful. Lot can become for us here an example of what not to do, of how not to live, of foolishness. 
something to be considered. I want us to look now at verse 13. We find there in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 14 that the word in the ESV is allies. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Memre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Dana, these were allies of Abram. Now, it's literally telling us that Abram had struck up a covenant relationship with these people. He had struck up a covenant relationship with Memre, Eshcol and Ana. Now, how are we to understand this? What are we to understand? Abram conducted himself in the world as though he were expecting troubles to come. And in any way that he could form an alliance that did not compromise his faithfulness, he did so. The scripture does tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Yet here we find that Abram has contracted a covenant with the people who lived nearest to him, dwelling at peace with his neighbours, an agreement of mutual aid, an agreement of mutual help. So let's think about this. What's the situation that Abram's in concerning the attack of the kings upon his kinsman, Lot? The situation that he's in is that he wants his allies to help him and they all have a a common enemy. They all have a common enemy. There's a, there's a little old um, aphorism, sort of a proverbial saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, Lot did not enter into a compromising alliance with these people. It's not spoken of as a sin, but for practical reasons, for pragmatic reasons, being wise as to the ways of the world, he formed this necessary alliance. There are situations in the world today where you might say the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, tells us that the Pope, in calling himself the head of the church, is an antichrist. It's pretty clear. It's basically saying that in terms of The doctrines that we believe the Roman Catholic Church can be considered to be an enemy. But at this time, we have a government that is overreaching its power constantly, left, right and centre, and taking away our, our freedoms, our rights that we have always considered to be ours, but it turns out they were never written anywhere on any particular document. Well, there are an awful lot of Roman Catholic, conservative Roman Catholic folk who are fighting against this and are struggling with this just as we are. And in this situation, the enemy of my enemy can be our friend. You see, the laws that would give them rights to freedom of worship, freedom of association, etc., etc., those same laws give us those same rights. Now, we're not going to compromise doctrine with them, and frankly, I'm I don't listen to a word the Pope says. And the truth is, at this moment, the Pope is not even a Catholic. Okay, it's a joke. Um, 
you know, it's funny, we used to have this proverbial saying in Australia, you know, you ask an obvious question, did the sun come up or something like that? And the answer is, well, is the Pope a Catholic? (laughs) Well, today, you wouldn't answer that way because by any doctrinal standard of the Roman Catholic Church that, that has been in place throughout the centuries, the current Pope is not a Catholic. He's not a believer. He is not a faithful Roman Catholic. He shares nothing in common with the historical teachings of his church. So you wouldn't even say that. Nevertheless, having said all those things and having stated that I would never, ever doctrinally compromise with Roman Catholics on any issue at the moment concerning what I would call the political struggle that's going on in Australia, I'm willing to find allies wherever I find them. This is the sort of situation that Abram is in. He is living in a nation that has been promised to him but has not yet been given to him. He doesn't rule over that land. He's certainly a great man in that land. We see he has 318 people in his household. These are the trained men. Well, then these trained men, would many of them would have had wives. They would have had children. Abram's household is a little mobile village probably six, 700 people moving around. He had 300 trained men. And not living in a walled city, but being, as I said, a mobile village, he needs allies. He needs help in times of warfare, and he's managed to strike up an alliance with some local men. The next thing I want us to see, looking at verse 14, is that Abram, verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, house 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. No hesitation. Activity is called for. Last week, no, not last week, the week before last week, in the book of Genesis, we looked at Abram and his division from Lot. And how Abram, as it were, took the passive role. He said to Lot, you choose. The land is broad. You choose. You make the choice. Whatever you choose, I shall go the other way. And therefore, there will be no argument nor strife between our households. You choose. And I spoke of the fact that sometimes faith calls for submission. The Apostle Paul speaks of being able to find contentment in any place, in any condition. He can, he can handle anything. Sometimes faith calls for submission. Sometimes faith sits and waits and hopes. But not all times. You know, people do go wrong. There are people who sort of think that faith and faith only sits and waits and hopes. All it does is sit and wait and hope. And they conduct church services where everybody walks into the building, sits in a circle, and they sit and wait and hope, waiting for what they call the oncoming or the onrush of the Holy Spirit when suddenly the church will be able to worship. They wait, they sit, they wait, they hope. There's a time for sitting and waiting and hoping. There's a time for submitting and being passive in the life of faith. There's a time for action. There's a time to get moving. How would you know when those times are? Well, we have in the Bible books that are called the books of wisdom. 
Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, even the Psalms are considered to be part of the books of wisdom. Learn them. Study them. Wisdom, it's the skill of living. It's to know what to do and when to do it. It's not easy to come up with hard and fast rules as to when you should sit and wait and hope and when you should actually jump up, act and move. But study the scriptures. You can learn these things. Notice also that Abram gets up and gets moving for the relief of Lot. I can tell you what a Pharisee's way of thinking would have been at this moment as Lot was taken captive. It would have been this. He got himself into this mess and he can get himself out of it. Why should I go running off after that fool? He made a bad choice. Let him bear his own consequences. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, the Lord Jesus says of the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're not willing to lift a finger to help. And that would be the attitude of a Pharisee concerning Lot. The fool has got himself in trouble. Let the fool get himself out of trouble. Is that your attitude when people need help? Is that your attitude when people ask you for help? It's a pharisaical attitude. It's the attitude of the self-righteous. It's the attitude of the unloving. Abram gets moving. Abram gets active. Abram goes seeking his kinsman, his fellow believer, Lot. Another point that I want us to see in verse 14 is that Abram was ready for war. He was ready for war. To me, this is in a way the main point in the passage. He was ready for war. Abram had all the promises of God that he was to possess the land, that this was to be the land of his children, that God was to be, was to be the God of his children. The one who blesses you, I will bless. The one who curses you, I will curse. You will be a blessing to all the world, etc., etc. Abram, blessed and beloved of God, and what do you know? Abram is preparing for war. He's ready to go to war. He has trained men. You know, they practice. They learn the skills. Trained, willing, obedient, able you know, there, there are those today, part of the visible church, who would tell you that to talk of warfare and that to be prepared for struggle and to even struggle in any way is to sort of be a troublemaker and cause trouble, that we're supposed to be peaceful on all occasions, that we're always supposed to take the softest, the softest possible option. We're always to be ready to back down. Well, Abram with all the promises of God still ringing in his ears, as it were, is preparing a little army of faithful, loyal men. They're in his household. They're people that he knows. They know how to fight. They're willing to fight. And he's going to take them into the fight. Think, my friends, of a few passages of Scripture. Turn to... Ephesians chapter 6. 
Reading from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in, in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In the book of Ephesians, where you have this incredibly deep theology concerning our salvation, concerning that we are predestined to salvation, concerning the fact that we will not be lost. You know, all of the great doctrines of the Reformation, you can find them in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, quite explicitly there. Yet even so, what's the recommendation of Paul? Live your life ready for war. Now, he's not talking about, you know, he's not talking about Worldly battles, is he? He's not talking about have a tank in the shed, have a cannon on the roof and a drone, you know, an armed drone ready to take out your enemies as they come up the driveway. That's not the kind of warfare that he's speaking of. At least not primarily. He's speaking of the spiritual warfare. Be ready to fight. Be willing to fight. The modern church and so much of the modern church here in Australia has become soft-handed, limp-wristed and effeminate. Soft-handed, limp-wristed and effeminate. Not willing to take a stand on any issue. Always seeking to back down. Always seeking to give ground. Always willing to say it's not worth the fight. It's not worth the battle. Well, where has that gotten the church in Australia? What percentage of Christians do you think or I'll put it another way. What percentage of Australians do you think are sitting under the word of God this day? Under the word of God. I'm not even saying how many are attending houses of worship. I'm saying how many are actually sitting under the word of God, under its authority, accepting the authority of God as read of as read and preached from his word i'm pretty sure that when you ask that question the percentage you're going to get is something down below 5% it's something down below 5% we know that in this district total attendance to all denominations is at 1% 1% and we know that not that not every church or house of worship in this district faithfully teaches the word this weakness, this desire to be soft, this refusal by men to actually make a stand on principle 
it is destroying. It has basically destroyed the church here in Australia. I don't think we can even deny that. You know, total church attendance in Australia back in the 1950s was sitting well up over 50%. Now, I'm not saying everyone was a Christian. I'm not saying every church was a gospel-preaching church. But think of it. Over half the population in attendance at some church on a Sunday. And what are we now? We're weak. We're an incredibly weak nation. I mean morally weak, spiritually weak, easily, easily fooled, easily brought under lies and the, and the domination of manipulative people. Look around us. Look at what's happened in the last two years. My friends, if you want to be strong, men, if you want your families to be strong and walk with God, well, guess what? We're committed to warfare. So are you, ladies. You're committed to the warfare of prayer. But men must be men. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. Sorry. 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. My fault. 1 Corinthians 16, look at verse 13. In his closing remarks, the Apostle Paul says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Masculinity is kind of hated these days, isn't it? You know, a man who, uh, how would I put this? Men are seen as the problem, not the solution by the world around about us. And it's felt that there should at least be total equity between women and men in leadership, etc., etc. Feminism has had its victory at least in... um, the influences of the world, in the universities, in the press, etc. Toxic masculinity. That's the phrase I was trying to remember. Toxic masculinity. You've heard it? Men are hated. Masculinity is hated. I don't really care what they think it is. But this I know. The scripture tells me that one who is watchful and firm in the faith is one who is acting like a man. One who is acting like a man. Do you call yourself a Christian man? Well, then the scripture says be watchful. Be watchful. Be on guard. Be discerning. Be watchful. Look for things with which you must deal. Look for things that you have to, as it were, cast down. With the word of God. Look for things that are running against the word of God and as men who are at the head of your own household, teach your household to discern. Teach them to turn from that which is evil. Teach them how from the word of God it is evil. Show them the difference between the ways of the world and the ways of God. And you yourself refuse to compromise. I've used the word effeminate. 
Now, that word has a sort of range of meanings. The word behind effeminate in the scripture, that is. It can mean a submissive homosexual. A submissive homosexual is considered to be effeminate. It can also mean, in this range of meanings, one who refuses to accept military discipline. One who refuses to accept military discipline. That is also the meaning of the word that is behind the scriptural phrase or word effeminate. My friends, as men, God has drawn a line and he expects us to get our toes on that line and hold the line. He expects us to act the part of man, to be strong. Even so, we do this in love. We do this in love. Love is not weakness. It's not this soft, airy-fairy thing where you don't stand up for anything, you don't disagree with anything or anyone. There's no 11th commandment that says you shall be nice to everybody at all times under every circumstance. I'm not giving you an excuse to be rude and arrogant. That's not what I'm wanting you to do. But I'm wanting you to understand how you can be firm and not surrender, even as you are being polite and respectful according to that which is commanded in Scripture. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. I'm giving us Abram as an example. He was prepared for war. His young men were trained in battle. When the centurion came to Jesus and said, I too am a man under authority. I too am a man under authority. Do you understand what he was saying? The centurion is a man of war. He fights. The centurion is also a man of discipline. He is under incredibly strict discipline within the Roman legions and he also administers the discipline within the Roman legions. And many of the disciplines were administered with the penalty of death. That's the kind of man a centurion is. Something like, I've heard it described as something like a cross between a sergeant major and a colonel. Or colonel, however you say the word. He said to Jesus, I too am a man under authority. He knew what kind of man Jesus was. Jesus, in his humanity, was a man who was, as it were, militantly obedient to the will of God, refusing to compromise, willing to go to war on behalf of his people. Abram was prepared for war. My friends, are we? Are we? Do we know the scriptures well enough? Do we know the scriptures well enough to stand up against the false teachings of the world? Do we know the scriptures well enough to practice godly discernment? You know, are we willing to come under God's discipline? It's something to be thought about. 
Abram was prepared for war. Even though he had all the promises of God, Abram prepared for war. And this is wisdom. This is wise. We don't necessarily get the easy walk through the world that some seem to think we're supposed to have. Looking at verse 15 of our text, we see that Abram also was something of a strategist. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Something of a strategist. He not only had his men trained, he had himself trained. How to deal with particular situations. What would work? How can I do this? Let's say his three allies gave him the same number of men as he had, as he himself had. He's gone off then with an army of 600 men against an alliance of five kings, or four kings, sorry. Yet he won. He won the battle. Wisdom. He used wisdom. He took into account the situation that he was in. He did not make some crazy headlong charge. He used wisdom. He obviously found them at a weak point. He obviously, knowing their weakness, was able to take advantage of it. My friends, are you able to at least give some kind of scriptural answers to the world and its attacks? I'm not asking, are you the greatest apologist on the face of the earth? You don't have to be. But the commandment in First Peter is that we are always able to give some apologia, some reason for the hope that is held in our hearts, that our Saviour is the Son of God and, our, and um, therefore our Saviour. Are you at least able to give some kind of answer? Finally, I simply want us to look at the fact that Lot, through all this trial and tribulation, was preserved. Looking at verse 16, Then he, that is Abraham, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. My friends, the ones who are accounted righteous are preserved. Weak as a believer he was. Lacking in wisdom and sanctification as a saint, he certainly was. Yet even so, God through Abram preserved him. God through Abram protected him from the worst of his own decisions. The worst consequences of his own decisions. How far would we get in our Christian life if God did not preserve us day by day? How far would we get? if any aspect of our salvation was reliant upon ourselves. How far would we get? If I had to save myself, I might as well give up. Throw my head in. Throw my hand in, I mean. Give up. Go and party, for tomorrow I will die. If I have to save myself, I will surrender. Because I know I cannot. I couldn't. Turn my heart to the Lord because my heart was dead. God granted me life. I couldn't maintain my faith, but God 
has indwelt me by the power of his Holy Spirit. God preserves his own. Often you're going to feel like a very, very poor Christian in this life if you are any kind of Christian at all. Often you're going to come under conviction of your sinfulness, your foolishness and your weakness if you are any kind of Christian at all. God preserves his own. My friends, when Jesus died upon the cross, when our sins were nailed to him or nailed to the cross in him, I should say, when he bore the burden of our sins upon the cross, he bore the burden of all of our sins. All of them. In the knowledge of God, in God's perfect knowledge, according to God's perfect will, all of our sins, past, present, future, all of our sins went to the cross in Christ. I'm not giving you permission to sin. That's not what I'm trying to tell you. Therefore, do as you please. Don't worry. Sin all the more. Grace abounds. I've heard similar to that said at times. I'm not giving you permission to sin. But what I want you to know is that our God is gracious, faithful, steadfast, that he preserves his own, that he forgives us our sins. They are forgiven. That doesn't actually mean that we're free to do all we please. It means that we are supposed to, in thanksgiving, in faithfulness and in love, serve God with all the more dedication. I'm not trying to motivate anyone to Christian service through guilt, and I hope you haven't interpreted the things I've said in that way. Guilt is very poor motivation for the Christian life. It destroys faith. I'm trying to, to, to motivate us to greater efforts in our Christian life through thankfulness, through appreciation, through love toward a merciful God. That's why we should love him. Because he is so worthy of our love. That's why we should serve him, for he is so worthy of our service. And every good thing that we have, and every good thing that has been given to us, we have because God has given it. Therefore, we ought love him all the more with joy and with thanksgiving. Lot was preserved. So in my closing comments, what do I want to tell us about Abram? What should we take from this? Abram, who is a servant of the living God and possessing the promises of God. Well, what I want you to see in this chapter, or in this portion, I should say, is that Abram here is acting in a Christ-like way. Abram here is acting in the imitation of his saviour. My friends, that's what happens when a person gets regenerated. Their nature gets changed. What they once were, they no longer are. Abram is acting in imitation of Christ, whose day he had seen from afar. He's the shepherd that goes, goes out hunting for that one lost sheep that is being held in the jaws of a wolf. Lot is the lost sheep 
And Abram draws all that he can to the fight. His own household, the households of his allies, all that he can, he brings to the fight. Why? Because there's a lost sheep out there and it has to be brought home. Lot is to be preserved. Abram is in this way behaving in a Christ-like manner. Jesus, our good shepherd, who will never let us go, who brings all of his resources to bear to bring us all the way home into his very presence for all of eternity. Think of it, my friends. God, the eternally begotten Son of God, has set his heart upon having you, if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, God, the eternally begotten Son of God, has set his heart upon having you in his presence. He wants you with him for all eternity. He wants to rule you personally. A greater, more glorious, more beautiful, more righteous king than we can possibly imagine has set his heart upon people like you and I. And all of the resources that he has at his hand as the king of heaven sitting at the right hand of God the Father are dedicated to bringing his sheep home. We don't look with the eyes of faith often enough, do we? We don't, we, don't, we don't look clearly enough with the eyes of faith at what it is that God is doing in this world. We look at the wickedness of the world around us. We look at the downfall of our nation around about us. My friends, we are being preserved, drawn back, carried, protected. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. Though we dwell in the midst of our enemies, God sets a table for us. Though the world around about us starves, God fills our cup with oil. It overflows. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. Abram, as it were, becomes an example of what we who are Christians ought be doing. How often in the scripture are we told to restore the brother who sins? We're told to do it in the book of Galatians. We're told to do it in the book of 1 Peter. We're told to do it in the book of James. We're told to do it in 1 John. Restore the brother who sins. Bring him back into the flock. I understand they must be called to repentance. But repentance is the means of the restoration. I'm not saying we restore those who are unrepentant. But the repentant are to be restored. It's the purpose of God's discipline. God's discipline upon his own people is never discipline to the point of destruction. It's discipline for the purpose of re-establishing fellowship of getting the behaviour that God desires from his people. The God of Abraham prays, who reigns enthroned above, ancient of everlasting days and God of love, Jehovah, great I am, by earth and heaven confessed, I bow and bless the sacred name, forever blessed. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that the Lord Jesus Christ is our shepherd. 
that he indeed is the great shepherd, that he has made promises to us. We have his words in the Holy Scripture. We know that he will not let us fall from his hand under any circumstances and that, and that the world will not have us, for it is not your will that the world will have us. Father, it is your will that we be drawn into your presence and worship you in the presence of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.